Listener Production. Behind every great politician, and bad one, is what? A good partner? Well, yeah, but there's someone possibly as vital, certainly in relation to their capabilities to do the job we put politicians there to do, the Chief of Staff. I'm Adam Peacock, and Peacock Politics is all about uncovering what goes on in Australian politics, and a fair bit of it, it turns out, is about managing people. So what of this person who is the man or woman behind the man or woman? What does this Chief of Staff do and why is it so vital? My guest has been there and done that. Clive Matheson was Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, before that in a deputy role for New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. Now he's in corporate communications. So, Clive, you still have stress in your life. I'm guessing you just get paid better for it. It's a slightly different level, yes. <laughs> Run us through the daily workings and try and break down in simple terms, what is a chief of staff? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Adam. Um, can I just do a little caveat before we get going? Go for uh, it. You've, you've sold me very, very well. Um, I was chief of staff to Malcolm for a grand total of three weeks at the end. Um, I did have a year as his deputy chief of staff, so I've seen it up close and obviously working with the uh, Premier Berejiklian and, and with Mike Baird before that, I have been a study in chiefs of staff, but just technically three weeks um, until that ended uh, rather suddenly. Suddenly. We'll get to that a bit later yep. on, um, but technicalities aside, you were still chief of staff, so sure. it doesn't matter how long. It's great on paper. Three yep. weeks, three years, three months. Run us through the daily workings and, and, and break down in simple terms what a, a chief of staff does. Sure. Um, so it's a it's a 24-7 job. So it's hard to say when your day sort of starts and ends, but let's pretend you get some sleep. Um, And your role is effectively, I mean, technically you're a chief of staff, so you're there to manage an office. Um, And the day is basically trying to bring structure and order to what could be chaos. You're there to um, support the prime minister and the government, obviously. Um, And I'll just talk about the prime minister, but it Mm. would also work at a state level with a premier. And you know, if, if you've ever seen a prime minister's diary, they're absolutely chock a block from you know dawn till you know events and you know sort of pressing the flesh late at night. They are you know incredibly full days, and it's your job as chief of staff, working with the people in your office, to stay on top of all those different elements. And uh, hmm. you've got people in the office who do these roles for you, but it's your job to oversee them. So you've got cabinet and ERC, and obviously there's a lot of preparation that goes into those cabinet meetings and the various cabinet subcommittees. You've got your policy team, which works on policy development and redevelopment and resets as needed. As I mentioned, you've got the Prime Minister's diary, and that's being on top of who the Prime Minister's meeting with, um, whether inside the building, who they're talking to, from heads of state to celebrities and, and everything in between, where they're physically going to be. Are they on the road? Are they doing an announcement? Do they need to be in Melbourne for Cabinet, etc.? So you've mm. got to stay on top of that. You've got your media relations and your press office. Um, obviously, you know, they're... You're one of the main links to the outside world. So again, you've got to make sure that's coordinated. You've got the basic mechanics of government, which often goes in a prime minister's diary just as signing. And, and that literally is just the, you know, a stack of documents that need the, the prime minister's signature. And, and often they come with a briefing note and an explanation about why am I signing this? So you know, you've got to make sure that that basic machinery of government is moving You've got to liaise with um, the other ministers um, and their officers um, and the backbenchers. So there's that, you know, sort of internal liaison as well. You've got to always remember there's the politics. So you're liaising mm. with the party. You're thinking about the next election. Um, you're thinking about which key seats uh, you need to worry about. Um, there's the very important liaison with the public service. So often you're the, you know, the, you're the main conduit between the prime minister and the public service, whether that's the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet or Treasury and others. So there's that. 
You've got to make sure Parliament runs effectively. So you've got people in your office who, you know, making sure that, you know, the Prime Minister's not embarrassing themselves when they stand up at the dispatch box. So there's that process. You've got the constant, you know, outside world um, of people offering you free advice. There's business, there's lobbyists, you know, there's, there's all those people, again, coming through the Prime Minister's diary. Then you've got to manage your staff. And, you know, in the Prime Minister's office, it's about 50 people. In a Premier's office, it's typically closer to, to 30. And that's like any sort of small business. You know, there's people, there's hirings and, you know, people who need to be moved and there's people who, who have their own sort of a- a- ambitions. So that's, there's that. And that's really then about getting, make sure you have the right people in the right roles um, to do all these things so that you don't have to micromanage all of that. And particularly at the start of a term, um, you also have the management of the staff right across government. Now, you're not deciding every single role, but typically, you, you know, you would have heard it described as a star chamber of, you know, a group of people in the government who um, basically tick um, the roles of the chief of staffs for other ministers and things like that. So all of that can happen to varying degrees on a single day. Um, and usually you're jumping between all of those areas. Now, if you've got the right people in those roles, you know, if you've got a fantastic head of policy and you, you know, you have great faith in them, or if you've got a terrific head of the press office, and I've been lucky to have a, a lot of people in those roles that I've been in, um, there's less that you have to take on personally, but you certainly have to be on top of it. Is that all? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I'm sure I've left out a couple <laughs> of things. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that springs to mind is why on earth would you put your hand up to do this? Surely there's a simpler way to live your life. Oh, it's intoxicating. Politics really gets to you. You know, you, you do really get a sense that, you know, you, you're the centre of something important. And every day, no matter how much, obviously we had some difficult moments towards the end of my time in politics, even on your worst day, there were still amazing things that happened. You know, amazing, you know, people you met, access you had, um, information that you were privileged to, um, you know, and, and working up close with a prime minister and with other cabinet members, you know, it, it really is one of the best jobs. Just on that quickly, how much information in the running of a government actually gets out to us? Oh, not much. No. <laughs> really? Uh, no, there's, I mean, the, but behind every decision that you might see or behind every parliamentary debate or every policy announcement, the amount of work that is behind that, and in particular if you take something that, you know, a, a policy that ends up running through ERC and cabinet, you know, I'm not going to obviously give away any of those, you know, cabinet secrets, but, oh. you know, should we, should we stop now? <laughs> yeah. but, um, That's but, it, over. <laughs> but, you know, for, for an announcement of a Prime Minister standing up and announcing, you know, a significant policy position, I mean, that's work that may have taken months, years to sort of pull together, um, that it involves the public service, it involves a huge amount of, you know, analysis and, and stress testing and briefings and, you know, you've got, say, if it's a health announcement, you've got the health department will be working on it in the health minister's office, plus treasury, plus finance, plus PM&C. You know, so there's just a huge amount of information. And sometimes all that work goes nowhere. So it sounds like squeezing the world's biggest orange to get one drop. Sometimes. Sometimes. But, you know, but the influence that that one drop can have mm. on Australians is, is enormous. So the Chief of Staff is a big part of that to make sure that you can work towards matters like that and there's a whole range of other issues that you have to put up with on a day-to-day basis. The politician is in charge, obviously, final say, but how influential is the Chief of Staff to the politician's way of thinking? Yeah, again, uh, good question. So the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office tends to set the tone for the rest of government just as a start. So you know, if you've got a, a prime minister who's particularly open, collegiate, you know, is prepared to test ideas, then that will be reflected in the staff they hire. 
it will be reflected in the way the chief of staff does their job because obviously they're, they're a reflection of the prime minister and that will then filter out through the government. If you've got a prime minister who is more centralised, wants more control and discipline, um, then that will be reflected in the chief of staff. So as a start, you know, that that's how the chief of staff has a significant, because they are a main liaison with the rest of the government, their bearing can affect the way a government operates. How influential are they with a prime minister? The prime minister gets no shortage of free advice, mm-hmm. um, you know, internally and externally. 25 million people, essentially. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you, you've got your cabinet colleagues, you've got your backbenchers, you've got obviously lobbyists and business influencers, you know, you've got your own staff, you know, he or she takes advice from the family as well. I mean, there's no shortage of that. And, and I think, you know, I've been thinking about this and, and, and what a chief of staff can do is can also provide advice, but they're one of the very few people who have only the Prime Minister and the government's interests at heart. Like a lot of other people say that that is their interest, but in actual fact, they've got other reasons for wanting a decision to go a particular way. So that's sort of one way that you can cut through it. But, you know, I, I've worked with Malcolm and I'm not giving away any secrets. I mean, he he, he likes to test ideas. You know, he, I wouldn't call him a forum shopper, but he certainly likes to get ideas from a lot of areas. So there was never one single influence on him. He, you know, he's certainly his own man. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you need to cut through all that, mm. then somebody close to him, like a chief of staff, and, you know, can actually, you know, have an influence in the final decision. How do you land in the space of a chief of staff? You're a newspaper editor. You worked in newspapers for a very long time. How did you wind up sitting there next to the Prime Minister in some of the biggest moments in recent Australian political history? Uh, so the offer, I mean, I, I, I'd always said very loudly, there's no way I'm ever going into politics. Hmm. Um, I told anyone who'd listen, and, and I was approached about a potential role in Mike Baird's office um, when I was at The Australian and, of course, I, you know, by a good friend of mine, Imre Selzinski, who was working with Mike. And, uh, of course, I said, no, there's no way I'm ever going to go into politics, but, you know, because you're a friend, I'll hear you out. Then but, New South Wales Premier Mike Baird. Then New South Wales Premier Mike yep. Baird. Um, and I, I went and met with Imre and uh, Mike's Chief of Staff, Bay Warburton, uh, and I think, you know, they, they sort of ground me down over a short period and, and it was the, you know, it was the right timing for me. I'd been in media a long time. I was looking for something else. And so I went and started working in Mike's office as a policy advisor for some reason in infrastructure. I'm not entirely clear the thinking behind that, but, it, you know, it worked out well in the end. But uh, I, so I, that was my introduction to politics. And as someone who'd come from the outside, who's someone who thought they knew how politics works, you know, when you're at, a, when you're at the Australian, you're, I read everything. I was deeply engaged in politics. I realised I had no idea how politics worked on the inside. And, really? Uh, the, for six months, um, you know, I was convinced I was not going to make it. You know, that there's mm. no way I could, there's so many younger, smarter people around me who know how this place works. Um, I was just convinced I was never going to fit in. Is it because of the structure of everything or is it because of the people involved and the personalities involved and what they all want to pull in a certain direction towards? I just think I, I didn't have any concept from the outside of the interaction between public service and politics. I didn't, wasn't quite sure how a political office worked. Um, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't entirely clear how parliament worked, you know, the, the structures of first readings and second readings and, and all those little intricacies. And you've got people who've been living and breathing this for a long time and every day you know, something was coming across my desk that I'd never seen before. You know, you've got different briefing papers. You've got blues and pinks and greens and whites. Like they still use a colour-coded system for briefings from different departments or for different purposes. And so your head's swimming with all this sort of stuff. And it, there was a moment of clarity uh, sort of about six months in when I realised that 
there's plenty of other people bluffing their way through as well <laughs> who actually, you know, and, and you know, people are really smart and I'd walk up to them and say, look, I've got this. I don't need, I don't know. I have no idea what to do with this piece of paper. And they'd look at it and go, yeah, me either. Let's ring the secretary. <laughs> like, you know, so you, you realise that there's, you know, it is a confusing place to be. And I, I can, you know, the longer I was in there, the more comfortable mm. I, I became with it. And then obviously Mike's um, time in politics ended before I would have liked um, and many other people. Um, I was lucky enough to stay on and work for Premier Berejiklian, um, which was terrific. But then I was offered a role, you know, in the Prime Minister's office. And at that point, as much as I'd sort of committed in my mind to, to staying with the Premier, um, I just couldn't say no to that opportunity. So you ended up as a Chief of Staff after winding your way through that political minefield yep. to start with how it all works. And what makes then a good Chief of Staff? Uh, so I think back to that, what I was saying before, about trying to bring structure to chaos. There's a very good book written called The Gatekeepers, which was written by a couple of, I think, Griffith University academics, and they interviewed 10 or 15 previous Chiefs of Staff, you know, from both sides of politics, Don Russell, Graham Morris, Sandy Holloway, David Epstein, uh, Arthur Sinodinus, hmm. and a lot of common themes came through about the role of a Chief of Staff, and I was lucky enough to be able to call on Arthur Sinodinus to give me some advice uh, in the early days as well. And it, a lot of it is about that structure being very organised. Um, it's about being calm. And I think if you have the, the structures in your office, if the functions of government are actually running well, then when you have a crisis, you're much better equipped to deal with it. Um, and if those basic functions of how your cabinet runs, how your ERC runs, how your liaison with your backbench and your colleagues works, then when there's a crisis, you don't have to be worrying about those those basic issues. So it, it's calm. Um, it's having that structure there's everything, there's always urgency in the office. There's always something that can distract you, like whether it's something that suddenly appears on Sky and there's always something that can throw off your agenda and your priorities. And I think what comes through in that book and what I saw is one of the challenges is making sure you don't allow those hundreds of little distractions, those little things, to swamp the big things, the big things you want to do in, as a government. On that, being a chief of staff and being... From what I can tell, it's essentially the 2IC to the politician and especially it's a very important job as the Prime Minister's 2IC in that regard. How much of it is helping politics and policy and what the government wants to do move forward as opposed to stop it from going backwards, i.e. crisis? Where's the balance there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, I mean, one of your roles is in terms of crisis and issues and problems, they're always going to happen. The best governments... Howard governments, the Hawke governments, they had their own issues um, and, and crises to deal with. One of your roles is to try and anticipate them, to see where they're going to come, to stop things from escalating before they do. Um, and, and part of the way that I've tried to do that is just to make sure that decisions were made and issues were confronted immediately rather than letting things fester and simmer, um, which is very easy to do because there's a hundred other things mm. to occupy your mind. So it's about that prioritising, uh, it's about identifying issues, and it's about trying to come up with solutions to problems, ideally before they have to get onto the, you know, the Prime Minister's desk. That doesn't mean you hide things from the Prime Minister. It's the last thing you'd want to do. They need to have visibility of what's going on. But you want to be able to solve these problems before they become issues or a terminal issue um, for the government. I mean, again, the Chief of Staff's not the sole person in the office. In my office, I was uh, fortunate to work with the outstanding Principal Private Secretary, Sally Cray, and she and I worked very well together. We got very different skill sets, you know, and so we were both 
you know, advisors to, to the prime minister. Um, and she would pick up some issues which she was better equipped to deal with and I would work with others. So, you know, and there are other very senior advisors on strategy, on the parliament, um, you know, in the office who could take on those roles as well. So I wasn't the, the sole source of that advice. I asked about what makes a good chief of staff. What about the other side? What makes a bad one? Uh, so the bad ones would be uh, somebody who's doesn't tell their leader what they need to hear, somebody who's a yes man or woman. Uh, you know, you, you've got to actually gird yourself sometimes and, and deliver an uncomfortable message. You know, the good leaders will accept that that is your role. Um, they've got plenty of people who, you know, will be sycophants, so they don't need another person like that up close to them. So that would be one thing. The thing that seems to cause chiefs of staff and prime minister's officers a lot of problems is centralisation. It's the, you know, when someone is truly a gatekeeper and you can't, you know, that they block access you know, to their leader, to the prime minister, um, or they try and exercise enormous amount of control, not just within their own offices, but within government, you know, within what, el- what other offices are doing, um, all the way down to hiring decisions and all the rest of it. So th- they're the things that tend to get called out um, as issues more than anything. The one thing, look, at something I brought to my role and I mentioned it earlier, is, is just trying to keep government moving and trying to make sure those decisions are made, trying to make sure cabinet works effectively you know, if you've got a, a chief of staff and that's not a priority for them, it can become a real roadblock. Government can actually stop functioning. There, there are hundreds of decisions every day that you don't see. They're just, you know, appointments and rolling over of legislation and updating boards and it's a whole lot of things that just have to happen. And government can actually stop functioning properly if, the, if you end up with roadblocks and, you know, you end up with you don't have control of the paperwork and things like that. How regularly does something like that happen? More than we'd know? Oh, it's just you constantly, you know, given the amount of things that the prime minister have to has to deal with, you're constantly reprioritizing. Like you know, things can jump to the top of the pile very quickly, um, and you just got to make sure that the things that are getting shuffling down aren't suddenly things like, oh, we've forgotten to pay the health department. You know, it's a, that's an extreme example, but you know, when you do get ministers who get frustrated that they're things that they need done, which need the approval of the prime minister's office, aren't getting the signature or aren't getting moved forward, that just breeds this frustration, which you know, I've seen at small levels, but observing it from the outside, you can see it can cause big problems for governments. Does the chief of staff follow the prime minister or the politician they're working with at senior ministry level or whatever the case? Do they follow that politician the whole time, their their shadow essentially? Uh, look, again, different um, officers work in different ways. Um yeah, we tended to be, if the Prime Minister was in Canberra, then we tended to be in Canberra. Um, you know, but either Sally or I or, or other advisors would always be around um, the Prime Minister. You know, if he was travelling overseas, absolutely. You know, if it was a road opening in, in Melbourne, typically our Chief of Staff wouldn't need to go to that. You've got good people, you know, sort of on the ground um, who can manage that. You'd have a policy advisor, a, you know, a press person, and maybe somebody else senior, you know, the diary manager or someone who travels with them. So not always, but, you know, I was based in Sydney and the Prime Minister was based in Sydney. So, you know, obviously it was pretty easy to be to be where the Prime Minister was. Sounds like a good role to have a ripping social life. Spare yeah, it's, time. it's great for that. Good for family life too, you'll find. Yeah, I, you know, have a young family. I still do have a young family, fortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you got through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it does. It puts a lot of, lot of strain um, on families, which is why you find... 
you know, a lot of the um, political staffers, and it's a big political staff, particularly in Canberra, um, it's, it's a young person's game. There's a lot of young people who are doing it who don't have families um, or there's people whose families have grown up, um, you know, who are involved as well. What's easier, uh, dealing with a, a toddler and trying to work out mm-hmm. what they're thinking or dealing with a politician who's trying to get in the ear of the, uh, yeah, the talking, Prime Minister or your boss? Talking about a backbencher. Oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Uh, it's a tough call. <laughs> it's a tough call. Yeah. There's there similarities there in a uh, sense? You, you can, sometimes you can, you know, you can rationalise with a toddler. <laughs> it sounds like a whole lot of fun. What do you learn about people in the role of a Chief of Staff? Because, you, okay, the, the Prime Minister gets treated a certain way and there's a certain amount of prestige, but they will tell you, I'm guessing, what they actually really think sometimes. And if you're telling them something that they don't want to hear, they'll really tell you what they're thinking. You, you, do you learn a lot about people's behaviour in yeah, this role? Yeah, and I think, I mean... Every chief of staff will do the job differently and it depends on the personality of the person they're working for. You know, so, yeah, you do. You, you, you're in close confines with that person for huge amounts of the day. Um, not just them, but your whole office, you know. So, you know, all of you are very tight. You know, so you do learn a huge amount about people and how they operate. Um, but, you know, some people will need, you know, like to be supported in different ways. You know, and, and there are certain things where your leader, Malcolm's, you know, has his strengths. I mean, I was never going to get into a legal debate with Malcolm Turnbull, uh, you know, or even, frankly, a business debate. You know, he'll, he'll know 10 times more than I ever will about that. But there are, there are areas where I can sort of bring some some strength to that relationship as well. And, you know, in, when you are working under such intense pressure um, and huge amounts of stress, you do learn a lot about people. You learn people are only human, you know, and there are people who deal with it in, in different ways. But, um, you know, the, the team that we had together in the PMO, um, 50, you know, even in for those brief few weeks when there was enormous amounts of stress on that office, a huge amount of governing still got done in that period. And there was still, you know, people still treated each other with respect and there was still humour in that office. Um, and we've remained, you know, very tight as an office since, you know, because of that, you know, sort of forged in fire kind, yeah. of, kind of feeling. And that uh, that's not unique to this. And a lot of other offices sort of, you know, they, they do have that. You speak of those three weeks in the midst of that. I mean, it was the the leadership spill of August 2018. I don't know if you have catch-ups around that day. To, to, it's, not one, it's not one you celebrate necessarily. <laughs> it's a yeah. close-knit close <laughs> group, but you speak of the PMO, the <laughs> Prime Minister's Office. So take us there and, and what that period of time was like through the eyes of a Chief of Staff and what you learnt about humans and the good and the bad about people and a role such as the Chief of Staff in that period. Yeah, so I, I sort of saw my role as quite new, obviously, even though I'd been around the office for, for a while as Deputy Chief of Staff, I saw my role as keep making sure the office was functioning and, and staying together and was informed, you know, as much as they could about what was going on. There's plenty of other people dealing with the politics. Like, I didn't particularly see that as my role, um, you know, offering my advice where it was needed. But again, in that week, there's a lot of people offering the Prime Minister a lot of free advice. Um, and he was taking his own counsel, obviously. You know, and there's a lot of stressed people. You know, I've old enough, I've been around long enough, you know, I've, I've seen a few difficult situations, but you got some young people there, it was their first job, you know, and, and the, the uncertainty and you hate seeing people that you respect, in, in this case the Prime Minister and, and others being put through, you know, that being put through the ringer like that. So it was, look, it was a, a stressful time, but as I said, you know, there's a lot of governing got done in those, you know, few weeks because government needs to keep going. So you're dealing with that and you're watching Things play out on Sky, which is ever present around Parliament House. 
you know, and you, you, it was just fevered kind of speculation. Um, and you'd be watching something and say, is that true? Have we just lost so-and-so and so-and-so? And, you know, again. Oh, the support for the support, Malcolm yeah. Turnbull and then switching so it was, to it was a, else. It was quite a surreal time, you know. But, again, when you see the good in people, the good in people, and I'd count the Prime Minister and his family amongst this, um, you know, and, you know, the others in the office just sort of came through. To the general public, and there'd probably be no series like this if that didn't happen because mm. that's what drew me in to try and work out how Australian politics works and then next thing I know I'm through five series as it sits right here as we're recording this particular episode that how it all works, I just fully did not understand how politics works. After that little period of time when the Prime Minister got rolled and Scott Morrison took over, did you have a greater understanding how politics works or were you more confused than ever? (laughs) Uh, Look, I live by the sword, die by the sword. Like, you know, I've seen enough political you know, sort of governments fall. Um, you know, I was obviously, I was working the, the night that uh, Rudd was rolled and I remember working on the Oz that night and uh, I was night editor and we had three different editions of the paper as it evolved through the night. So I had a good appreciation that, you know, these things can take on a life of their own and sometimes it's just they're the unstoppable force. You know, so, yeah, do, do I have a better understanding of it? I, I, don't, I don't think my experience on the inside Enlighten me to the way a coup could work, right? but it, it's it's there's a there's a frustration with it because it just sucks the oxygen out of everything, and you can't talk about anything else, you can't do anything else, and it just it gets this self fulfilling kind of sense to it, hmm. um, you know. And as much as you can, you know, have a good day of governing and make some good decisions, and a couple of announcements land well, like if it's still being seen through a leadership prism, and you know that there are elements inside the government who are, you know, determined to cause trouble no matter what. It, it takes a certain, uh, I guess, stamina to sort of keep coming back, you know, day after day. It's weird looking outside into something like that. It's, it's a bit like being in the park and you see a, a big family gathering turn into just a, a flat-out brawl. And then you're outside looking, you might just walk past and pay a bit of attention to it. It doesn't really affect me, my day-to-day life mm-hmm. as a, a normal punter, but looking on and you just say, oh, they're, uh, they're not exactly getting on, but life goes on. Outside of that, do you get caught up sometimes in inside the, you know, if you want to call it the bubble, the, yep. the bubble? Oh, the bubble exists. And, yeah. you know, the, the, what I found in media and, and what I found now in my current job, like every every workplace is a bubble. Like, you know, every workplace you can convince yourself that the rest of the world's wrong, you convince yourself that you're right, convince the, you know, the, yourself that everything's unjust and if they just listen to us, if we just said a little bit louder, they get it. So everywhere does that. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's sort of unique to politics. But, you know, one thing that I've done since leaving politics is I don't have Sky on. Like I'll turn to Sky if it's a, you know, the big news event, absolutely. But I don't have it on 24-7. I don't wake up and put it on, you know, and and that just is constant reporting on the bubble. And when you're in the bubble and it's reporting on the bubble, like it's just, it's all consuming. And then when I'm outside now and I'm not listening to it, I don't feel any less informed you know, about the big events happening in Canberra. And I do read, um, obviously, and, and, and watch the news. But just because I'm not listening to it 24 hours a day doesn't mean I'm less informed. Look, I might not know the minutiae and I might not understand, you know, why one particular factional leader is now defected over here. But the rest of the population doesn't need to know that. So as a chief of staff, from what I can understand after this conversation, there's no real manual when you get into it, you've you've kind of just got to find your way. And if you're equipped as a person to be able to handle what is thrown at you, you're equipped. And if not, it's not for you. Look, I think that's right. Um, you know, it's incredibly 
you know, prestigious thing, position, and I'm, you know, honoured to have actually been given the opportunity by Malcolm to do it. Um, and I would have loved longer in the role. I mean, just as the role um, adapts to the kind of support that the Prime Minister needs and wants and the way they want to run their office, you, the way you do the role kind of adapts to your skill set. Now, my background was media. I did some policy work um, at the state government, and I was drawn to those sort of policy areas. My predecessor, Peter Walcott, you know, he came out of DFAT, so he was very drawn to, you know, sort of foreign affairs and national security. I wouldn't claim to be any expert in that area. So there's plenty of people in the office who knew much more about that than I did. So Peter's the guy that jumped out three weeks before the spill happened. Peter was offered a very good job. He's the smartest man on the, <laughs> on the face of the planet, isn't he? Peter's a good guy. And, uh, we had oh, a lot you of, still get on? You oh, don't, we do. Yeah, don't no, no, hold no. a grudge that he left you with that? No, not at all. No, we had a, a number of conversations around that time. I bet you did. But uh, thank you for filling us in on exactly what a Chief of Staff does because it sounds like it's an ultra-important role that really doesn't get much attention. There might be a reason for that. Well, I mean, up until you know very recently in the last couple of decades, they really were in the background. It's apparently a role that only started with Whitlam. So, um, you know, it's reason in Australia at least, um, and they really were in the background. And now, of course, they're published in the Financial Review's covert power list. And, you know, and look, the one, one of the KPIs, apart from don't lose the boss, and I may have failed that one a couple of times, but the other KPIs never become the story um, as chief of staff. And as soon as you're, you've become the story, it's time to get out. Well, Clive Matheson, you are the story here because you've talked to me for a half an hour or so about what on Peacock Politics, and I really do appreciate that, and um, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, producer Tina Matilov, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.